Hello everyone, welcome to today's episode. Today we are joined by George from the Changing Markets Foundation where we will be talking all about greenwashing, legislation, and so much more. I hope you guys really enjoy this episode and I'll see you in the next one. So today I'm really excited to be joined by George Harding-Rolls from the Changing Markets Foundation. George, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start off the conversation by talking about you and your experience with greenwashing and how you came to start campaigning against it. Um, So was there any point in your career that was like an eye opener that made you think like, okay, wow, this is a major issue and I want to be a part of the solution? Yeah, I think um, it probably came relatively recently um, when I start when my work starts to take more of a focus on like um, corporate campaigning. So, um, so exposing the way the role that corporates have in what we call like delay, distract, derail um, of progress towards climate targets or any kind of sustainability goals. Um, so maybe that was probably in about like 2018, 2019. Um, but I guess the kind of that that depends on like a bit of a background of like working in sustainability for a while and kind of um, seeing how the narrative around the corporate approach to sustainability has really evolved over the last like you know 10 to 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked in the sustainability space for my entire career. Um, still relatively young. I'm only 30, but um, I've worked in the sustainability space for about um, wow. 11 years. Uh, but having been aware of, you know, the reason I work in this space is I was super aware of, of um, the climate crisis and, and various environmental issues from like my mid-teens onwards and knew that it was something that I wanted to get into. But I, that's relevant because when I um, really kicked off working in sustainability, when I lived out in, in Beijing and worked for a law firm, um, we were getting super excited about the corporate approach to sustainability as it was at that stage. They were calling it CSR, really. Um, you know, some more ambitious companies were talking about it in a bit more sophisticated terms, but mostly it was corporate social responsibility. And really, we were getting so excited about the ability of businesses to shift the needle um, and for the market to take the lead on the action to address various various environmental and social issues. Um, and so that like naivety, I suppose, um, not only being very young, but also being a little bit further back in the sustainability movement, um, it's that naivety that stands in such strong contrast to uh, what we're seeing today, where really you just have to be cynical about every single corporate approach to sustainability um, and see it all through the lens of greenwashing to start with. And it's sort of a, it's a guilty till proven innocent rather than the other way around. Mm, wow. I had no idea that you were so young and you've been in it for so long. Like, wow, that's, that's really admirable. Um, I want to ask a pretty big question so I've made an episode before I know I'm starting in with like hard questions um I made an episode before where I discussed like three big society sectors which were like government customers and brands who have like a key role in eradicating or ending greenwashing so in your opinion who do you think is most responsible or responsible in general to end greenwashing or to put a stop to it 
Uh, I would push back on that and say unhelpfully it's all three. Um, but I think the most important thing is to take a, a systems view of it. Um, I do think that a, a lot of where we've gone wrong so far, whoever it is that we're speaking from, whether as an individual, civil society, a brand, government, is to th see these things in isolated terms to say this is a consumer problem. I mean, that's something that, can, that, that um, corporates love to say. They love to say plastic pollution is a consumer problem. It's about litter bugs. You know, that was a narrative that's been peddled out since like the 1950s in the US and, and taken off all over the world. Um, just recently, um, I spoke to the, some Bloomberg journalists who've been doing an investigation in Ghana, um, and you know what's going on in Ghana right? Uh, so um, yeah, in Ghana right now is uh, this narrative still of like pushing it all onto the consumer and saying you know if only they would shift, the whole system would shift. So it's not just the consumer; it's not just the corporates as well because they sit within a, a system that relies on on demand for consumers. They help to generate it as well, but it does rely on that demand. And again, it's not just um, governments because they get you know voted in in most democracies um, in all democracies <laughs> get voted in in that where they get their mandate to create change so i think understanding things from a systemic level and understanding the different um the power play between those three entities will help you get closer to like what are the levers for change that actually need to be pulled and it may be that in like one stage or one area of greenwashing um such as the regulation of misleading claims what it is what's required is the regulators what's required is government agencies to come on board board and bring that in um and on the other end at the more grassroots level like what we're doing at changing markets it's about um calling out the bs and you know making a making a big thing of it and campaigning about it and then of course you need the conscious brands to come through and say like actually look this is the way that you do talk about green claims so it's it's a really really shifting landscape and i think half the difficulty of working in any area of sustainability is keeping your eyes on the on the on the ground actions that you can take but also at the systems level and understanding how everything is interacting with with each other yeah yeah that's that's why it's a hard and big question because it's so interconnected so for someone who's deeply confused let's say it's a consumer who just found out about like h&m's issues where before they had no idea what would be like their first step to kind of feel that they have an actionable, you know, where they can take a little bit of action instead of just feeling like, because sometimes I feel like there's this um, eco-anxiety when you learn everything and you learn a bit too much that you feel like you can collapse inside. So what's one thing that let's say an individual could do to help yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think knowing that you're not alone, that everybody's confused about it, um, greenwashing is is misleading. It is deliberately misleading um, and, and muddies the water. And so if you're a consumer, someone who's wanting to buy a product, but not sure whether this is a sustainable one or this claim is legit, all that sort of stuff, the confusion is genuine and it's, it's okay to feel confused. Um, I think also moving away from the idea that your only way that you can act sustainably in the system as a consumer is how you buy uh, and how you shop and so if you can't trust the claims made by h and um that it shouldn't necessarily be that you then need to go and find a brand that is actually like that you can trust the claims of um, maybe it's actually that you need to recognize that the system is not really helping you. It's not really designed to help you buy the most sustainable product. It's designed to sell you a product, 
regardless of, of how. Um, so yeah, like taking a step back and if you are really annoyed about it and, you know, like want to sort of get engaged in the greenwashing um, side of things, there's, you know, big communities out there, a lot of people in the same boat, a lot of people um, calling out greenwashing. You know, we built this website greenwash.com for precisely that, that purpose to help people spot greenwashing in the wild, as we say, um, but also to give them a bit of a kind of rallying platform, a bit of a community to get engaged with um, and keep up to date with with greenwashing. Because I, I do think that one of the reasons that I, it, greenwashing is having this moment at the moment, and one of the reasons that I'm really glad that I'm part of it is because it's telling the story of sustainability um, live, essentially. You know, every day there's something going on with greenwashing. There's some new thing that we can talk about boohoo later because that's that's really hot off the press um and you can see the the guise of sustainable fashion and the guise of corporate sustainability really kind of starting to to shimmer and crumble in front of us and the, the illusion of it is really starting to become apparent and once the illusion of sustainability of, of greenwashing wears off then that's when we get to the real actions that need to be taken and we can kind of identify that more clearly yeah a hundred percent um now that you talked about greenwash.com a little bit, I want to focus on that just a little bit more um, because I really do think it's a platform that I think is essential for bringing um, front and center to consumers. I think it's like one of the main ways to get educated on it. Funnily enough, before it came out, I was brainstorming ways that I could come up with something like this. And then I saw it and I'm like, oh, this is exactly it. Um so does the greenwash.com campaign connect in other ways to the other campaigns that you have? So like dirty fashion, fossil fashion, if so, in what way? Yeah, so um, the story behind greenwash.com is that our CEO bought the domain um, after kind of like a long negotiation with the people who currently have the domain greenwash.com, I think a couple of years ago and sort of sat on it and was like, this is probably a strategic thing to have at some point. Um, and we'll see whether we do like a stump with it, whether we build out something more like we'll just have it there. Um, the opportunity presented itself around London Fashion Week in um, February 2022, so earlier this year, um, when we'd done all this research in 2021 for a report called Synthetics Anonymous, uh, where we investigated 12 different online retailers um, and looked at a, so for, from the synthetic side of things, synthetic fibers um, made from oil and gas. So we call them that fossil fashion um, and hugely pro problematic for a variety of reasons. You know, obviously it's oil and gas and that's something we need to be transitioning away from very rapidly, has a huge carbon footprint. The production of synthetic fibres um, uses a similar oil consumption to the annual oil consumption of Spain um, and a huge amount of emissions. I think it's the equivalent to 180 coal-fired power stations every year. So it's a, wow. a, a real climate nasty for the fashion industry. Um, Wait, could, we so say we were... that, could we say that statistic just one more time, a little slower, at least so it, it sits in? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm so used to rattling off stats. I just sort of like do them, do them very quickly. Um, so yeah, the, the the production, I think it's the production of polyester. So uh, the most commonly used fiber and the most commonly um, produced synthetic fiber. Um, it produces the equivalent emissions of 180 coal-fired power stations every year. Um, and synthetic fibers requires the equivalent oil of the whole of the consumption of Spain in a year. Um, you know, it's one, it's 1.35%. 1 that sounds like a small amount, but that is actually very, very significant. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it's polyester, synthetic fibers are plastic. Um, and, you know, the, the 
problems, the, the climate problems, the environmental problems, the pollution problems of plastics across its life cycle. Um, it's one and the same with plastic packaging, um, and they're very, very significant indeed. So um, it's something that has been very, very convenient for the fashion industry to not have been uh, had awareness raised on it for um, until our, our campaign came along in, in 2021. Um, I'm on a huge tangent here about how we get to greenwash.com, but <laughs> I'll keep going with permission. Um, so we did all this market research. Uh, we looked at 4,000 different products across 12 online retailers um, at what the synthetic content of those products were um you know so like boohoo for example it was like 86 percent of their um of their products that we looked at contained synthetic fibers um it makes them very cheap it makes them that's it's the backbone of the fast fashion industry um and then we also looked at any green claims that they were making on those products whether they were um synthetic products or, or other products and we found this statistic uh that when it all boiled down with a given you know a reasonable reasonably conservative estimate um, was 59% of green claims were found to be misleading or substantiated, which is pretty significant. Um, yeah. You know, those are claims that every consumer is going to have been um, encountering. So when it then came to London Fashion Week, we decided, you know, we need to do something about this. We need to um, show just how easy it is to mislead people on, on sustainable fashion green claims. Um, so we built out a kind of minimum viable product for greenwash.com, um, where you kind of enter through a, a virtual laundrette um, and then you you do a, a see what comes out in the wash, you do a quick spin um, by brand or by product and we give you tangible examples of what greenwashing looks like in fashion. Uh, we've since expanded that out to plastics early this year and then um, we're bringing on the food sector, um, meat and dairy in uh, in November. Um, and yeah, the fashion stuff we launched outside London Fashion Week very much without permission with me dressed up as a washing machine, um, much to oh, the kind that. of confusion of uh, of like all the influencers who were there looking, might I say, even more ridiculous than, than I did. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so that was maybe the high point of my career. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, you mentioned walking through like, a laundromat and or a laundrette like you say it um I when I first went on the site I noticed the sound and the in experience is very immersive I was curious to know why why is it so important for the campaign um to be so immersive because that's not something I've seen in a lot of websites or campaigns that have such an immersive experience and I know the amount of grunt work that goes behind the scenes to create a website so functional and yet so immersive. So there must have been a lot of um, time and investment spent on that. So I'm curious to know why is the immersive experience so important for greenwash.com? Yeah, I mean, I have to take my hat off to our um, our design team there. We work with a, a brilliant design agency called Fiasco Design, who I've worked with. Um, I took them from my old company and, and, and brought them over here, old NGO, and brought them over here. Um, brilliantly creative. And I think having a really good relationship with an agency as a, as a campaigner is super important. Somebody who um, can turn things around quickly and you know you're going to get that level of creativity so they actually turned it around in, i think less than a month which um our account manager on that side i think got a few sleepless nights over it but you know we said to them like we've got to build this thing out we don't know what it's going to look like over to you guys what can we do and we had several brainstorming sessions about exactly that immersive feel um of wanting it to feel um you know kind of uh like there's something slightly gritty slightly um 
slightly sort of otherworldly about it. Like there's a there's an artist called Edward Hopper who who uh, you'll recognize his work if you don't know already. He his most famous one of his most famous pictures is um, of a kind of cafe in like somewhere like Midwest America, a cafe with a woman uh, like sitting in the in the in, it's at night sitting drinking a coffee, and it's very like melancholic. Um, and yeah, we just love that that sort of vibes. So went for that, and they built it out incredibly quickly. But a kind of wider point around the importance of visuals and the importance of creativity and, and immersive experiences in campaigning. I think it's something that a lot of NGOs um, don't do so well, maybe, is that they think that the message will sell itself. And they think as long as they do research, as long as they're evidence-based, you know, good ad, good rules of advocacy, um, then things will get across. We know that's not the case. And we know that actually it's the immersive, it's the kind of visceral things that really get people going. Um, we did this at the start of the campaign and we actually hired a, a production um, production team, production company um, to do us this amazing film, um, which you can send a link to afterwards, where we actually got like all these models in synthetic clothing and covered them in, in like an oil. Um, it wasn't actual crude oil, but it looked like crude oil saying, you know, the fashion industry has a dirty secret. It's their oh, huge I remember reliance. that. Yeah, that was so much fun. I got to be director for a day and like rented out this warehouse in a sort of edgy part of East London and like throwing throwing oil over people. And um, yeah, that was that was a, certainly a perk of the job. But the result of that is you've got these incredibly expressive visuals, which, you know, the pictures tell, tells a thousand words and a, a short film tells a million. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, like you said, one thing that's really missing because the biggest thing that we're talking about right now is greenwashing and the reason why greenwashing and greenwashing is a multi-million dollar issue you know it isn't something that people do cheaply you know they create extensive schemes to do um and when we compare uh what the work that we do in the sustainability space a lot of it is about the message and not about the experience but the reason why greenwashing is so effective is because it's all about the experience and not the message um so it's so important to see these type of things where the experience is so front and center, like just you explaining that um, that campaign that you did and me being able to remember that. And I bet many other people did too, really makes it so important and also like is what makes the, you know, Changing Markets Foundation different and also helps move the, the, the needle and for people to actually understand the issues. Um, I wanted to switch uh, rails to talk a little bit about legislation a little bit. Um, so before we get into a really juicy point, um, first, I wanted to ask, uh, do you think legislative action is possible and most importantly, realistic um, to uphold anti-greenwashing standards? Uh, certainly, yeah, it is. It's both possible and realistic because it, it is happening. Um, I think the thing to remember around greenwashing is it is still about marketing and it's not really actually about sustainability. Um, and I think it, that's something that that is easy to forget. Um, if we address all green claims and take down all green claims that are misleading, uh, we still end up with a situation where the majority of products on the market are not sustainable and, and can't prove it. Um, and I think there's been a slowness to like follow through the logical steps of what action on greenwashing will actually mean. Um, greenwashing is dangerous because it is a smokescreen and because it stops us seeing the level of change that 
needs to be created. So tackling greenwashing in, in and of itself does not make anything more sustainable. It just gives us a clearer picture of where action needs to be taken. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there it's kind of like pulling teeth all the legislation on greenwashing and actually kind of enforcing the legislation on greenwashing. And it takes a really long time. And what we're seeing with um, H&M and the, the Sustainable Power Coalition, Hig Index and stuff at the moment, which we can talk about later if people don't know about it, um, has taken a really long time, a lot of effort, a lot of money from campaigners, from lawyers, from all that sort of stuff. And that's all just to make sure that the claims aren't misleading and that, that are taken down. And that hasn't moved things any closer towards true sustainability. That still needs to be done by the brands or that needs to be done through other pieces of regulation, which actually create minimum requirements for placing products on the market in terms of in terms of sustainability. So, yeah, it's it's possible and it's happening, but it, it in and of itself, it's not enough. I totally agree. One thing about um, the fact that there's so much going on just to make the products misleading and like not misleading um, is that a lot of the problem, though, is that it gives us a false sense of security, like as a society. Um, and that if people knew how serious the issue was, is it might actually help move the the overall um, dial towards sustainability so even though it doesn't like completely it doesn't tackle it at all not a, not even a slight bit but it does help people to see like okay this is a, still an issue because what happens like I even being in the space have been um, toyed with in my head because you know it's a very um, effective psychological tactic right And if I feel like, oh, okay, I'm okay buying this or like, I feel okay doing this, then it makes me feel like the issue is actually being addressed and I don't need to worry. Um, So having that barrier removed um, and exposed, then at least gives people a sense of like urgency and knowing that like, okay, we do need to actually still do stuff like this isn't just okay as it is. It's not getting better. Um, Since you mentioned... Sorry to, to interrupt you, go ahead. No, go for it. I was just going to say, like, it, it comes back to the point I said earlier. It's like it feeds into this illusion that we can shop our way out of the climate crisis or that our only way to shift the needle on the climate climate crisis is as a consumer. And I think that's very, very convenient for businesses. Um, and it's very uh, disarming for activism. And the sooner people can kind of shift away from that mindset and realize that they have a huge amount of power um, as part of uh, as a citizen um, and as you know a part of a movement part of a community and in, in kind of raising your voice then the better and I think a lot of the exciting things about the regulation that's going on and the rulings and just talking about the UK here although there are others across the world from the advertising standards agency and the um, competition markets authority is that it's a kind of like armchair activism you know people can raise these complaints from their own computer and they're already pulling themselves out of just that consumer mindset and thinking themselves as more of a, as more of a sort of environmental activist and individual and citizen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A hundred percent. Since you did mention H&M earlier, I want to talk about that a little bit. For those of you who don't know, um, H&M recently just got hit with a a class action lawsuit over wrongful environmental claims, specifically misleading and false sustainability marketing. This lawsuit also argues that the company's recycling program is also misleading. So I'll leave more of that info in the show notes. 
But I did want to ask, what is your take on the recent H&M lawsuit for misleading claims? Do you think that um, do you think that this lawsuit will lead to real action in their business? Or do you think that a punitive fine will come out of it or do the trick? Yeah, I mean, the level of fine that we'd be needing to talk about, um, it, it would be have to be very significant for them to change their ways. Um, mm -hmm. I think they, um, the thing is that the, the sustainability teams in these brands are, um, you know, they're nice people, they're, they're committed people, nobody wants to see the world uh, burn, <laughs> you know, everybody wants humanity to, to continue to flourish and all, all that stuff. So we're aligned on our goals. It's just the kind of different ways of getting there and um in many ways brands like h&m have raised their head above the parapet and are getting stung for it um i do think it's i think it's entirely justified that they're being gone after um but i do think it's also part of them kind of like dipping their toe in the water first um and not doing their homework and not doing enough work on actually substantiating these claims and again buying into that myth that the that um consumers can consume their way out of the crisis or they can help them to consume their way out of the crisis um i think what is most interesting about it is the kind of chilling effect that it will probably have on a lot of other brands to take action um not to take action on sustainability but to talk about sustainability in an unsubstantiated way um, so I actually spoke to the um, Sustainable Apparel Coalition. They came over to London. I had a meeting with them because we've been very, very vocal critics of the Higg Index, um, which is one of the tools that the uh, the H&M used to substantiate its green claims. Um, and yeah, they're, they're concerned about a, a chilling effect on brands communicating sustainability. What it will mean, and this is the good thing about regulation, is that you can then start to trust claims that are coming out from from brands again because i don't think we're there yet but hopefully we'll get to a stage in the future where we'll be able to see the market in a much more clearer light because brands will be so scared about things like class action lawsuit um mm -hmm. or, or the regulation at their doors that they will only put on the claims that they know are really um trustworthy and actually the other day so asos is part of the, of the competition authority investigation in the uk they took off their responsible edit uh, which was the one that we investigated and we found that i can't remember the exact figure but it was i think it was between 50 and 60 percent of those um, responsible edit claims were spurious and unsubstantiated um so they took their responsible edit offline before the um, cma investigated and there are still some products online which are tagged with circular or recycled or whatever and mm -hmm. they're very carefully worded and they give a huge amount of information and they really go into details as to exactly why they're making these claims I could still pick them apart and I could still think that there would be more information that is needed on there particularly around like recyclability but those ones they've clearly really thought through and I think that a consumer would have reason to trust them uh, beyond other claims yeah so there is a even regardless of the outcome of the lawsuit, there is some positive that will come from it regardless. I didn't even think of that. I don't know why, but that does make a lot of sense how and a lot of brands that are potentially greenwashing or are definitely greenwashing, um, they don't have the budgets that H&M has to just like, oh, yeah, we'll fight this. It's totally fine. Some smaller brands might crumble at a class action lawsuit um, just because of the, the press, you know, that that might cause, you know, 
for the customers and then also the legal fees and stuff like that. So I think it is definitely moving in the right direction with that. Um, I've always wondered, and I'd love to get your perspective on this, because when I was doing a lot of research on greenwashing, uh, because it is so expensive to greenwash, um, and in some times, in some areas of the supply chain, it can be less expensive to actually do the work. Um, I'd love to hear your perspective on why do you think brands greenwash to begin with instead of actually doing the work? I am. Um, yeah, I would disagree that it's expensive. I think it's incredibly cheap to greenwash. Um, you know, it's mm -hmm. mostly done through words and imagery and it, it's words and imagery are pretty cheap. Um, you know, the fashion industry is so much about marketing and it's so much about image and um, and how it makes its its customers feel. And rightly, they have, or rightly or wrongly, but, you know, rightly from a marketing perspective, they've cottoned on to this huge concern that people have around environmental issues. And I've seen that as a lens to market, um, a lens to sell people more products. So, yeah, I think it is way, way easier for, for corporates to greenwash than to actually make the changes that are necessary in the supply chain. One of the ways I always look at it is um, when brands are, saying kind of like throwaway green claims like um this cotton is 100 traceable or made from uh recyclable you know this this is recyclable or whatever or around apparel it almost the when they make them in a throwaway way you know for sure that it's greenwashing because if it was actually legit and if they'd actually done the work on it and if they'd gone to their supply chain made sure that, that the cotton was traceable or made sure that they had the kind of like take back systems and and recycling systems in place that you could actually turn that garment into fiber to fiber recycle it into something new you would hear about it so much more like they would not stop telling you about it um because it, it would be actually legit and genuine so when they're kind of making these like slightly insubstantial floaty claims you know that it's not legit um and i think it speaks to a wider point around around the corporate approach to sustainability around the around the kind of market-based approach to sustainability that has been the the de facto way that we've approached it so far, give or take a few exceptions of legislation, um, they're always going to, in a, in a kind of capitalist system and in a free market system, they're always going to do the easiest and the cheapest option because that is the way that the system is built. Mm -hmm. So it takes a brand indeed. Um, and usually it's the smaller brands, the ones that are kind of like individual led, that have a strong sense of purpose. It takes a very unusual company to actually do things in a very legitimate and authentic way and to be justified in the way that they talk about those kind of green claims or social claims. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Um, so what are the, like, I would say green flags, but I don't think that's a good way to say it. Good flags <laughs> um, to look for in a brand. So let's say someone is at the stage, like I mentioned earlier, that they're confused, but they really genuinely need a new pair of pants. Um, and now they can't trust anyone. <laughs> and they're like, okay, well, how do I find good people? And what are the good flags to look for? So one of them that you mentioned was like, if they actually communicate and explain how they're being sustainable, are there any other ones that consumers can look for? I mean, I'd say the first thing is if you if you need a new pair of of trousers or whatever, then you um, go buy secondhand <laughs> or repair them. Or you know, there's there's many other ways to being a sustainable consumer than than just buying from a sustainable quote unquote um, brand. But yeah, so um, 
for me it's really about um about honesty and authenticity from brands and i again i think smaller brands are more um equipped to to make those kind of um to market things in in an authentic way because from a big brand if they're saying like oh sorry we don't really have the answers on this yet you're like well come on like you're a multi but multi-billion dollar brand like why can't why don't you have the answers why haven't you looked into this whereas a smaller brand if they're like look we're trying really really hard to reduce our impact this is what we know this is where we don't have visibility and we're not going to make claims about the about where we don't have um, visibility so i was on a panel at the global fashion summit in in copenhagen out in and one of my co-panelists was the head of responsibility or head of sustainability at all birds um the the footwear company they have um i think a more refreshing approach to green claims where they talk about impact um and they talk about um like this shoe the the carbon footprint of this shoe is 7.8 kilograms i mean that we we should be talking more than just carbon emissions we should be talking about kind of like global warming potential from things like methane as well if it contains animal products like there's many other ways that we should be looking at it but if you just take the carbon metric it's like 7.8 kilograms of carbon were released into the atmosphere in the creation of this shoe you can't avoid that like they try to bring it down as much as they possibly can but you cannot avoid that every product has an impact and i think that is one of the misleading things around around greenwashing is trying to pretend that products that any product is good for the planet you know mm-hmm. products are products are good for providing a livelihood um to people along the supply chain um they're good for meeting the needs of of customers um you know providing footwear that you can walk around outside um but you cannot get away from the fact that every single product has an environmental impact and you have to be really honest about that and say you know as with all birds we tried everything we can to bring this down as far as possible and here is where we've got to and that's kind of baked into the product um rather than saying oh this product is carbon positive or this product is I mean regenerative is slightly different but you know this this in buying this product it, it will inherently improve the environment it's just such a such a false trap full strap a natural trap not a full strap <laughs> <laughs> that is one that I've actually seen a lot and I've had people come up to me and ask like okay um I want to buy this shirt and it says that it saves this much from this from the environment but it's kind of like a lot of the times they're either made with polyester or like fossil based materials so it actually doesn't help in the in the first place so it's a very complicated way um so i guess the in in summary the best thing that people could do is um shop, shop secondhand first repair mend mm-hmm. and then when the time comes look at people who actually back up what they have to sell basically <laughs> Yeah. And I think, you know, if you if you're getting to the stage that you're thinking about it in that level of depth, then like you're probably you're pretty, pretty, pretty good egg already from an environmental perspective. Um, I think the concern is that the vast majority of consumers just don't care. Um, and, you know, you can see that with the rise of Shein. It, this is a generation, you know, Gen Z and, stuff who, and millennials and many others who do care about the environment and are very, very concerned, um, you know, have a lot of eco anxiety. And yet they still um, are able to have the cognitive dissonance whether they can then go online and, and buy a load of Sheen products um, or Boohoo products or any other name your your fast fashion retailer of choice. Um, I think that speaks to a very human thing in all of us is is, is convenience um, and is our ability to put our bury our heads in the sand and for very good reason. I mean, it's a tough world out there. Things yeah. are going very very pear shaped the environment, and we all need to uh, take care of ourselves first too. 
that's not to say that doesn't give you an excuse to buy fast yeah, fashion. But... 100%. <laughs> Do you think there's a way to make sustainable fashion uh, convenient and also like how to get the majority of people to care without it being overwhelming or negative? Because a lot of the time when we talk about sustainability, it's all about the negative. And the reason why people consume so much is because of that hit of serotonin that they get every time. Um, and it's a psychological positive reaction that happens for a very small period of time. Do you think there's ways that we could do the same thing, but to get people to care or to change the way that we think about clothes? Yeah, I mean, I think brands have a really amazing power in in you know, they hold up a mirror to society as it is, fashion brands, you know, who we are, what we aspire to be, um, you know, how we interact with each other, what kind of face we want to put out to the world. And I think that fashion brands can hold up a very different set of values to consumers and say, this is the thing that you should inspire towards, aspire towards, um, you know, whether that is uh, re-engaging in kind of like community, community-led activism, if that's if that's your kind of inclination in the sustainable fashion space, or the kind of uh, reuse and repair and durability stuff. I mean, personally speaking, that is somewhere that's something that I've got like much more into. Um, you know, my mum, my mum is a tailor and um she's, you know, a brilliant, she makes curtains, she can, you know, repair any any red in a, a piece of clothing and it made clothes for us as kids and um you know some, growing up with something like that has given me this natural real sense of satisfaction when i like repair a hole in something or, or sew on a button something so caring for your clothes you spent money on this item um it makes you look and feel good hopefully and there's a huge amount of satisfaction to be got in like keeping that in the system um and you know brands have a role in perpetuating that kind of that kind of behavior rather than saying always the solution is to buy something new we and you know maybe it's that they've got it as sustainable as they possibly can do and then you can take some satisfaction in, in buying that but they also need to be part of this and amplifying this um cultural shift towards durability and, and repair and reuse mm-hmm. um yeah i think that's i think that's probably awesome that's great I'm going to start closing it out. And before I go, I want to ask how can either brands or consumers support um, the greenwash.com campaign or the Changing Markets Foundation in general? Yeah, so greenwash.com, um, we're on we're on social media, we're on Instagram and Twitter, and our community manager is trying to tempt me over to TikTok on it, which um, is not my natural environment. So, uh, so I need some hard. tips. And- <laughs> so uh yeah you can follow and like and all, all that sort of stuff um you know we're always looking for like submissions to the site if you see some really egregious greenwashing um that you think should be on there then you can know uh, via social media changing markets we run loads of campaigns you know i work on the primarily on the fashion campaign and greenwash stuff but we have another campaign on um on methane methane in the meat and dairy industry which is super interesting we're always putting out new content um, likewise on social media um yeah and i think just kind of kind of uh keeping an eye on what we're up to and, and engaging with us where you can um the one that i need to get up on greenwash.com next is is courtney kardashian's appointment by uh, boohoo as their sustainability advisor which oh, has got the sustainable fashion community in a froth <laughs> yes <laughs> that i don't understand that that doesn't make any logical sense to me i mean god it's like I don't know, man. 
like they've really shot themselves in the foot is my opinion like they've shown just how little they know actually about sustainability and and it's all about marketing and hype for them and we knew that already and i hope this helps more people to understand that actually don't listen to boohoo uh, anything they have to, to say about sustainability and don't listen to a private jet owning drought order defying you know multi-billion billionaires <laughs> about <laughs> sustainability no second thing yeah a hundred percent i agree <laughs> So I'm going to end it right there. Thanks so much, George, for being on here. It was so great talking to you. Thanks, Chris. Really, really enjoyed it.